welcome to Her Dark Materials Book Club. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels a chapter at a time, spoiler free. However, in this special bonus episode, we're getting together to chat with a guest to talk about the series as a whole. So if you haven't finished the books, pop back when you're all caught up. In this episode, we're so excited to be sitting down with Kristen Russo, who you might know as being the co-host and producer of one of our favourite podcasts, Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Kristen is also the co-founder of LGBTQ organisations Everyone is Gay and My Kid is Gay. excited to have you. I am so excited to be here. I, I'm so excited to talk about this book series, which I have like a very uh, personal relationship with on so many levels, you know? I'm so glad. It's so funny to us because obviously, you know, we're a big fan of, of Buffering the Vampire Slayer and our listeners know that too. And it's so great that that you and Jenny are both fans of the books because we didn't know that. And we were like, oh, amazing. Can't wait to talk to you about it. Yeah. And I can thank Jenny. Most of the things uh, that I am a fan of in this universe, uh, at least before like 2015, are because of Jenny. You know, like I, <laughs> I read this trilogy because Jenny was like, you should read this trilogy. I watched Buffy because Jenny was like, you should watch mm-hmm. Buffy. So, you know, let me be clear about my origin as a nerd. It is rooted in <laughs> Jenny Owen Young's. <laughs> <laughs> that's great I mean my relationship with this uh, with this book series is literally because of Rach she was like how did you read this as a kid I was like I did not read this like uh, this is a kid it completely passed me by it was only last year that I read them I think Rach was like you need to read these books because they're about a kick-ass girl did you read them <laughs> the year before you were like let's make a podcast about this or the same year I think it was the same year okay <laughs> You like started rereading them within less than a year. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I read them. I want to do it. Let's do it. Uh, I love it. I haven't seen and I haven't seen any of the um, t- like I haven't seen the TV show. I, like this for me, it's just this trilogy I've, I've read. It's interesting because the TV show is really good. Did you ever see the Golden Compass film? No, when that came out? no, I actually didn't. I mean, I would maybe give that a miss, but... <laughs> yeah, that's what I feel like I heard that and, like, maybe didn't watch it because of that. Yeah, we finished Northern Lights recently on the podcast and we watched the Golden Compass film. It was the first time I'd seen it. And I was like, this is... Uh, it's a lot. It's like one of those things where it's like, I don't want to shit on it too much because a lot of people put a lot of good work into making the film. But I think the issue was... And Rach, correct me if I'm wrong. The I think studio. it was the studio, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. that kind of... They made the film that would probably have gone down really well with fans but then the studio came in and just like completely cut it to shit basically so like somehow we can blame the patriarchy like at the end of the oh, day oh definitely like, absolutely yeah. 100% 100% <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was one of the little girls that like begged my mum to take me to the open casting call to be Lyra because I was like maybe a little bit too old but like I could have maybe played it oh and my I, god like they did an open casting call and there was like little girls from all around the country like I want to be Lyra obviously my mum did not drive me all the way to the other end of the country to audition I don't know why um it could have been you (laughs) what the hell mom (laughs) I'm glad it wasn't because yeah I watched the film even as like maybe like a 15 year old or something watching the film I was outraged 
Yeah. I, was a, I was a small, small girl filled with rage and it felt very appropriate. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's my experience is nine times out of ten. The book is better than the film. Like, it's just yeah. the way there's I have a bookstore by me, like a used, a really magical used bookstore. Oh, and okay. I know I could lose my, I could lose days and weeks in a used bookstore. And they have a shelf that just says the book was better. And it's like all of the books that have been <laughs> adapted that like they have that have been adapted to films and it made me laugh because it's true. It's true. It's so true. It is true. And I, I was saying to Rachel, I was like, I'm so glad you didn't play Lyra because then we would have all have to like pretend to have liked the film. <laughs> but yeah i mean Kristen, if you wouldn't mind telling us how you got into the books i know you mentioned that it was jenny that kind of brought you to it but yeah if you could chat about like your relationship to them i know that they're close to your heart yeah um so i think i'm trying to think of like the order of of events because i think that like I think Jenny and I had watched Buffy first before anything else, but very early on, um, I think like maybe 2010 or something like that was when I read the Harry Potter series because I hadn't read that either um, when it had come out. Um, And so like I had read Harry Potter, then I had watched Buffy. And so I feel like just a natural extension of it. Jenny was giving me a lot of like comics to read, too. You know, I was reading like The Runaways. I tried like 500 times to read Sandman and I still to this day. I'm so sorry, Neil Gaiman, but I just can't. (laughs) figure it out I can't get into it um but you know so I was sort of like consuming things of that nature and so um I knew about the golden compass um I I'm sure that it was just like in my consciousness from you know I I looked it up actually I thought it was even older than it is but you know 95 I was 15 so like when the books were probably having their first big thing I was you know in high school and so I knew of them and then the movie really brought it into my consciousness even though I didn't see it it was like such a big deal that the movie was being made um but I had no idea what it was about and so I didn't um I don't know. I don't think that I anticipated falling into it the way that I fell into it. And um, you may have heard the story already uh, because I think I've told it, I don't know, somewhere in the buffering space. But um, I had read. So Jenny and I got married in 2013. So that is actually really convenient because it gives me the exact year and time of year that I was reading the trilogy um, (laughs) because I tore through it. And so let's say I start reading in like maybe even August or um, July of 2013 and or later. And we went on our honeymoon in September, early September. And so I maybe I did. Maybe I actually started it like after we got married and read it that fast. So somewhere in the late summer of 2013, I read the first book and I brought the second and the third on our honeymoon. And uh, Jenny was like, you know, she had already read it, but she thought, ah, let me read the third one while she reads the second one. Like, we're here on the beach. It's beautiful. We have nothing to do. How lovely. And so she's halfway through the third one when I finish the second one. And I was like, this will not stand. Like, this absolutely <laughs> cannot stand. You can't have this book. I need to know what happens in the Amherst Spyglass. And so I know that you're putting up the video of our recording for your patrons. So I actually mm-hmm. brought my little, because I have, I have kept the trilogy. Jenny and I are, oh if you don't know, Jenny and I are since divorced. Which maybe this was a maybe this was a precursor. 
<laughs> but this is my trilogy. I'm holding it up. And so you can see that the golden compass and the subtle knife are like chilling. And then the amber spyglass, I cut it in half with a knife from the kitchen um, so that Jenny could read the back half and I could begin the first half. I actually thought it was a really genius solution uh, to our problem. So did it completely fall apart when you, when no. you open it? No, because it's not like, I mean, I think if I were using it like, you know, a text that I was referring to a bunch, it would. But I, I cut it very cleanly. It's right up page 298 to 299 <laughs> in my version uh, looks like. But you can see, you know, it's the first page is maybe hanging on by a thread. But, uh, <laughs> I, but I can't believe it's it. Fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make a note when we reach those pages in the podcast we'll we'll like have a drink to your book <laughs> yeah yeah this is where this is where it's split um and so you know it, it just it always like obviously I love the story and we'll talk about that more but also like it just the like experience of reading the book was so rooted in this experience like it just is so like this literal way of showing you how into the books <laughs> I was. I would not wait. I could not wait to get into the third one. So, yeah. I love that story so much. Part of me is like, <laughs> that's fucking amazing. The other half of me is like horrified that you cut a book in half with a knife. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> I know. And and like people have said that to me before, but I'm like, a, I'm a ma- like a book lover, you know, like I love to like put my entire face inside of a book and just like breathe in, you know, and I, I will occasionally use a Kindle if I'm like traveling or something, but otherwise like screw that. Like I love the pages of a book. And for some reason, like that, it felt like re- reverent of the book to do like it was like you couldn't do this if we had the book in digital form you couldn't do this like this is the beauty of the physicality of this book um is that we can cut it in half and so you know if it was like some first edition i wouldn't have fucked it up but (laughs) rach has uh versions of the book from years ago is it like when they first came out they're the copies that my mum read and that my sister read and that i read when i was old enough and they are the copies that Faye read when she read it the first Mm -hmm. time through. And then now they've been like, had notes and sticky notes put in them for the podcast. And my my poor Northern Lights slash Golden Compass (laughs) book, it lost its first page towards the end of the podcast because it had been through so much. (laughs) Yeah, see, your books are getting a lot of love right now. So Mm. that makes sense. (laughs) I'm kind of upset that I don't have that. Obviously, I came to it so differently that my books are like really new. So like I put mine against Rachel's. Hers look all loved and well-read and mine are just like these like pristine (laughs) copies. And I'm like, oh. You could just cut one in half. (laughs) Yeah, right? I might might do it on that exact same page. 298 to 299, right there, right? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) new new tradition, new tradition. (laughs) Does that mean that you, did you finish the third book while you're on your honeymoon? Mm-hmm. So most people that we know that have read the books have had some kind of, I think, did you sob out loud on the tube, Faye, when you finished the, yep. the third book? Like, did you have that on your honeymoon? <laughs> did you um, go like happy and like bright eyed and then just leave a broken wreck? Or <laughs> thinking about benches in Oxford? And <laughs> I know. I don't think I did. I think like, I think it's it's not common for me to I mean I have cried in reading a book and I have cried watching a television show or a movie but it is super rare for me like you both probably know that we just finished The Gift um, and that like I actually cried and it was a very big deal for me because I don't 
I don't know what it is, but it's just not. So so I was like very emotionally moved by it, but also Jenny had just finished it. And so I like I don't remember specifically, but I know that like more so than feeling like I'm going to sob now here on our honeymoon. It was just like I just like a book that makes you feel like that is so great. It's like so rewardingly wonderful, even if it's devastating and even if you have a million feelings and even if you, you know, are like so sad. I was like, I couldn't believe that I had also finished them, that there were no more for me to read and that I couldn't have any more of Lyra and that I couldn't have, you know. Um, But I think more than any of that, I was just like delighted to be able to share that with somebody that I loved, you know, that like we were were able to like converse in it in real time because we had just finished that third book you know within probably days if not like a day of each other because I was unstoppable imagine her watching you reading that last page being like cry cry cry." (laughs) (laughs) because that's kind of what I did to you (laughs) yeah no totally I remember I was reading it wasn't the amber spyglass can you remember it was a subtle knife and I was a few pages from the end and I'm also like we're the same as you on Buffering, we're spoiler-free, so like whenever I'm about to drop a spoiler, mm, even though these you episodes are, are full of spoilers, I'm always like, ah. But anyway, I'm just going to say it. In The Subtle Knife, when Lee Scoresby dies, and he was one of my favourite characters, and I was like, a couple of pages from the end, Rachel was like, oh, how are you getting on with The Subtle Knife? I'm like, oh yeah, fine, like, uh, Lee, Lee's just doing this shit, like he's like protecting Lyra, he's on, oh, I can't no. remember the exact situation, I'm like, he's on a cliff, he's doing really well, it's great. And then Rachel's like, okay then, and I was like, oh. And then, like, two minutes later, I was like, what in the fuck? I was like, oh, my fucking God. This is horrendous. (laughs) Yeah. It was so horrible. The subtle knife, actually, of the trio, the subtle knife is the one that, like, not messed me up, but, like, it, like, spun me in a way where I remember that book more than the other two um, except for in the in the ember spyglasses when they have to be separated from their demons, right? Yes, that yeah. scene. It was like the the subtle knife and the whole use of the subtle knife, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But that and the scene where they're separated from their demons and like just the whole mythology of the demons is what like really stayed all these years later with me. Um, through reading it, but yeah, no, I I'm sure that Jenny was like waiting for me. The amount of times that she has like watched as I've fallen into like a pit of sadness unexpectedly you know like you just made me think of um Game of Thrones because I watched Game of Thrones after she had watched Game of Thrones and she was like away on tour or something and I was like yeah I'm just about to watch the Red Wedding and I don't know if you're Game of Thrones watchers but I've I've not finished it. I won't spoil it. But let me tell you what. If you know, you know. And you don't. Oh, she I was like, great. Okay. Like, and I, 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 I texted her. And I think I think we knew Joanna Robinson at that time. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with the both of you? I'm alone at home. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it, it, I'm similar to you, Kristen, in the sense that it, it takes a lot to make me have like a visceral emotional reaction to something. Buffy is one of those things. So it's interest, interesting that you mentioned the gifts. I know, obviously, like you said, you guys have just finished season five and I had listened to your episode and I've, Rich and I are the same. We've seen Buffy so many times that we don't necessarily rewatch and then listen because yeah. we know it so well. But I was in, I was about to get into bed. I like flicked on the TV and they're showing it at the minute on like a British TV channel and it oh. was the gift. And I was like, <gasps> weird (laughs) yeah so i watched it and it always always makes me cry and it's always the the bit right at the end of the music before she jumps 
I'm like, I can't do this. It's like 11 p.m. on a Tuesday. What am I fucking doing? Like, <laughs> I mean, I was like angrier about having to make a podcast than I've ever been in my life when I had to sit down and watch that episode. Like I thought the body, I mean, I think the body I knew was going to be like I was preparing for that forever. But the gift, not that it took me by surprise, but it was just like I had done so much stealing myself for the body that then when we hit the gift, I was like, oh, God, oh, no, I cannot do this right now. And I have to. It is my actual job. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough season, definitely. Yeah. And it, it did remind me, like, because the his dark materials books were similar. They like it was a it was the first time in a long time that I'd experienced something new that like gave me that visceral mm-hmm. reaction. Because mm-hmm. obviously, I've seen Buffy a million times. I've read Harry Potter so many times that I can go back to those things and I still get those same emotions. But it was the first thing that it was something new to me. And I remember yeah. finishing the Amber Spyglass and just being just like put the book down. Okay. <laughs> and just like tears. And I was like, oh my God, this hasn't happened to me in so long. And I just felt like, I felt like somebody had punched me in the stomach. I was like, this is, I, this is too much. Yeah. This is too much. Yeah. You should pair it by being like seaside, you know, and having nothing else to do. It's a helpful, it was a helpful balm on my soul. <laughs> I'll aim for that. Yeah. <laughs> All future reads must yeah. be on a beach. <laughs> I know that we had a similar level of kind of approaching some difficult chapters, especially in terms of at the end of the first book, we know that Roger dies and it is devastating and it's Lyra's first big loss in her life. And that's like a huge moment to tackle. And I think when you're reading the books through, perhaps it doesn't like it hits you so hard and you remember it because it impacts Lyra for so far through the rest of the books. Mm -hmm. And then we realized when we were reading the chapter that it's, brushed over so quickly and you barely uh. even noticed that he's died and that was something that really surprised us so I was gearing up to be like oh this is right. gonna be such a big topic and then it kind of just wasn't and that was a topic in itself that was so difficult but um I guess that kind of brings us way back to the first book and I don't know if when you first like stepped foot into that world reading the first book if you could talk about what it was that kind of got you because I remember telling Faye about them and being like okay the talking animals and the main character's a girl. You'll love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, seriously, I think obviously, I mean, you know, uh, the book is the book that this particular book in the series has won all sorts of awards. So, uh, you know, I'm sure it's just like a given that the the writing itself is just gorgeous. And so the fact that you have this writing that is so visual and I'm such a visual person, you know, which is and that's like why to back to the point of like the book is usually better than the movie. It's like what your mind can do with words is always more powerful, almost always more powerful than what we can actually create for, um, you know, viewing. And so the the like visual detail in that book and the fact and Lyra, like the character of Lyra just like sucked me in because she's this like young tough girl who you know I just remember like the biggest visual I have of beginning the book and I don't even know if it happens in the beginning of the book is her like running across the rooftops um and and just being and like being there like you feel like you're her um you're rooting for her from like the minute that you open the book and I also loved the like otherworldliness because it's not I you know again it's been a minute like seven years since I read the first book but um 
I don't think that you realize where you are at first, you know, and so your brain just automatically kind of puts you in our world. Um, and so like figuring that out and learning, it just was it just was such a delight because you, uh, you know, um, thinking about like reading Harry Potter, like when you read Harry Potter or when I read Harry Potter, like I knew what to expect. Obviously, I didn't know everything. And I have a horrible story about the Internet spoiling a major loss in oh, Harry Potter no. for me. It was like the meanest one of the meanest the internet uh one of the meanest times that the internet have, has ever been to me but um anyhow with this i didn't know what to expect and that's also like very fun when you don't know anything and you're just like going with it as the pages turn yeah absolutely and i think uh, for me and rach i don't want to speak for you but i think we both we bonded over lyra so much because it's kind of rare that you get, and we we kind of draw, not to keep going back to Buffy, but we have had like episodes of the podcast where there's so many similarities between Lyra and Buffy. And I think one of them is that Lyra, she's so flawed. Like usually when you get a female protagonist, they're, they're, they're either always like perfect or they're not. Mm-hmm. Like you, you rarely get that kind of gray area, which I think Lyra is like, there's chapters in that like she's such a little shit sometimes like (laughs) (laughs) like she is and she she's got a lot of like internalized misogyny which uh, towards the beginning and like she she's a child so she's not thinking about the wider world especially in the first book obviously as we get further on that becomes more of her of her story but I love that about her that she's just this like wild little I think Philip Pullman describes her as being like a feral wild cat or something and I'm like love that about her yeah and you see some of those flaws in Buffy as well, because Lyra is regularly a bit of a rubbish friend, which I think we've all recognized in Buffy at times. <laughs> oh my God, we were just at, we have um, an episode that we're doing like a second episode for The Gift. And so we we brought um, Mac, who's been working with us recently in past months for the first time into the universe. And I'm like so afraid because Ma- Mac very justifiably is like, Buffy is a fucking mess and she's super dramatic <laughs> in the season and season five, whatever, whatever. And it's like, you know, I- I'm aware of that. Obviously, you both are aware of that but so many people like take the protagonist of a story especially like we're talking about Buffy in our universe you're talking about Lyra and yours and put them on this like pedestal where when you really start saying like no they're actually messy and like these are ways that they're messy um it can be both uh upsetting because you love the character but also and what I was saying in this conversation just recently is like it can be upsetting because a lot of us put ourselves in the character so you have to like reflect on yourself like Lyra's messy Buffy's messy like they're not perfect oh no that means that like I've identified with them and maybe I'm fucking messy too (laughs) completely (laughs) correct you are I am Mm. (laughs) we all are Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah and I think with Lyra Rach you said this as well but like recognize so much of like myself when I was a kid and just being yeah just being a messy kid and like just living your little kid life not giving a shit about anything else until until she has to I think as someone that read the books a lot younger I was like I am Lyra Lyra is me because I was like a messy little girl and rereading them now I'm that bit stepped away that I'm recognizing a lot of flaws in Lyra and a lot of the flaws that Lyra has that kind of make me cringe are definitely Mm-hmm. the like arrogant teenage girl flaws that I definitely had and I kind of love that that's something you can recognize in yourself in a character looking back at it or yeah looking back at someone like Buffy or like Lyra especially because they're both put up on a pedestal by the world that surrounds them so Buffy finds out that she's part of a prophecy in season one and she's the chosen one and all this stuff and Lyra goes through the series not actually knowing but with everyone around her being like she's 
in prophecy she's everything like the witches are all whispering about her all the time and like everyone knows and it's the like level of arrogance and self-entitlement that comes with that that can make you cringe (laughs) is beautiful and they both show it so well as characters that you could parallel yeah (laughs) yes yes oh we had this conversation like one day too late because we were just examining like what other characters are like chosen one who like really embrace it the way that Buffy does you know as we were talking about Harry Potter and like that he really doesn't like he really is very much like very aware of how everyone is going to help him on this journey and like yeah he happens to be the kid with the lightning bolt on his forehead but like really that's the old, that's the end of it like and past that it's like a communal effort whereas Lyra would have been a perfect example to bring up <laughs> yesterday <laughs> it's like Lyra doesn't know she's special technically or why she's special but right. she spends the entire book being self-important and knowing how special <laughs> she is for like no reason whatsoever like completely unsubstantiated and oh which is like such a 12 year old like yeah. you know I mean forget it that's a totally. definition of me when I was 12 years old <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh Kristen you mentioned demons and like that was one of the things that stood out to you can you talk a little bit more about that because it's such an interesting concept and we Rachel and I have had so many conversations about demons and just about what they mean to the person, how they interact with people. And also like there's been um, talk recently about the relationship between demons and gender and sex, because obviously mm. if in the books, if you are a woman, your demon is the opposite sex to you and vice versa. And we were talking about that in terms of, well, what about trans people and what about non-binary people? How would that work? Um, mm. And I think, Somebody tweeted Philip Pullman. They asked him, like, how would that work? And he was like, it's not something that I've ever thought about, but I'll have a think about it or something like that. So I kind of enjoy that he's kind of not done a JK Rowling um, and kind of like... <laughs> not closed the door. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's it's obviously something that he hasn't thought about. So I was wondering, big question. Yeah. But yeah, just demons. <laughs> First of like, all, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Philip, if you need somebody to talk to, like find somebody to talk to, man. Don't think about it on your own. Just if you're, if you're listening to this, like have some conversations with trans people. That would be great. Please. Yeah. Please. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I honestly, I hadn't like that wasn't my first experience. Like my the reason that the presence of demons and the mythology of demons was resonant for me in the first read of it um i i mean probably also as a cis person like didn't even think about it um yeah, totally, until yeah. later on um but my my first point of entry with demons was that um i mean so I've always had animals. Um, I've always had cats. Like growing up, we had cats. Um, at the time that I read this, I had a cat, a Trey, who I had gotten when I was 19 and first moved to New York City um, and who lived until 2015. So a couple years after this book. But he was already older um, because he lived till he was 15, I think. So he was already like 13 um, by the time I was reading this. And you know, th- there were a lot of things about the demon and the connection to a demon that that were really resonant. But it was actually after reading the book and feeling, I mean, you know, the the way that you feel when any of them become separated from their demon is powerfully written in a way where, like, if you want to talk about what makes me sob the most in that in the books, it's that. It's like the pain that they feel being separated. And I think, you know, I'm sure people have used the relationship of a, a person and their demon to examine grief um, and, and like moving through grief and loss. And in 2015, when we had to put Trey um, to sleep and like it was sort of like he had been sick for a long time. We were moving across the country and we knew that like it just would be very selfish to take him across with us. 
Um, and that loss was really one of the biggest losses of my life um, because as if you know, if you have pets, you know that they are like demons. They're like these time capsules. They they hold so much of you that like no other person could ever hold. And so Trey for me was I, you know, moved to the city when I was 19 and uh, several months later I adopted him as a kitten and and was then I was leaving New York City. And so he just embodied my entire experience of the city. He also was my animal whom I loved. And so and I had no other e- example in my mind that could better explain how I felt in losing him, which was exactly how um, it was written, you know, for Lyra when she had to be separated from her demon and and those like horrific uh, tales in the book of the kids who are separated from their demons. So so that was like my personal, uh, like why I think I remembered it so much, because when I was going through that loss, I I spoke about that like to Jenny. I was like, this is how it feels. It's like how I feel. Um, But in the reading of it, it also got me just because I loved the idea that they change shape um, in childhood. And to your point about the conversation around gender, um, I think that's actually a really powerful way. I mean, I know that like in the books, they're not changing genders so much but I think the whole mythology of it is that when you are small you are anything and everything you're you're exploring the world you're learning the world you're figuring out who you are and I I, I'm not I'm not quite on board with the like I I personally think your demon would change a whole bunch way after adolescence um but like (laughs) you know the the at least the mythology as it exists I think is really powerful in how much it shifts um when you're younger and that it starts to take more of a solid form as you um get into your like you know preteens early teens and what have you uh and 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 then the extension of that in that like they're separating them from this and saying like this is a way of protecting you and you won't have to feel the things adults feel if you don't have this playfulness if you don't have the I mean god you could lay over anything on that but it's just a very powerful um metaphor it's so powerful and we've just we're about to start the subtle knife on the podcast I read the first chapter like in preparation one of my favorite things about that chapter and about Lyra meeting Will is that Lyra meets Will and she's immediately obviously where's your demon and then she has this minute where she's like well your demon must be inside you then because i've seen kids that have been separated from their demons and i know what that looks like and i know how horrific that is and i really like that obviously will's from our world i really like that philip made that choice to have will's demon within him Mm. so that then us reading it in our world can be like oh my demon is within me and i just think that's really really beautiful um, and it's something that I'd forgot. Like I said, I'm the same as you, Kristen. Goldfish memory. <laughs> like when I was reading it, I was like, "Ah, oh, that's really beautiful." Yeah, yeah. You'll also potentially have forgotten then that um, when Will's dad steps through and and becomes accepted into Lyra's world, he like finds his demon. His demon like presents out. herself to him, Ugh. and he's like so surprised to find out that a part of him, not only it's female, but a part of him is. Mm. A, a hawk or an osprey I think it's some kind of bird and he's just like I didn't know I was a bird Wow! <laughs> and I love the idea of like your demon being something that surprises you it's not necessarily your choice and it can say something about you you didn't even know you needed to know mm-hmm. mm. 
And I also, yeah, I love the idea of, you know, you are constantly changing as a child. I imagine if my demon had settled as something when I was 17, I would not be happy with that now because the amount you grow <laughs> between like 17 and 27 is insane. <laughs> that's the thing is like that. And that's why. And like two, you know, obviously I know that like the three of us aren't going to solve the like what happens to a demon if you are trans a question. But like the the fact of the matter, even as a cisgender person, is that we are changing in our relationship um to many things over the course of time and i think the like the experience of being trans is not unilateral it's not one you know so much there's so many issues in like the story of like well they always knew right and then uh, that overlaps a bit with being queer in general like but so much with um trans kids it's like but you played with like you played with dolls as a kid you didn't show any signs and it's like well some kids do manifest like ch- uh, questions around gender when they're little and some don't and like there's there's no one way of being trans and so i i think like the beauty of something like a demon and the embodiment of a demon especially if we like give that demon permission to like settle form but then change form is that for all of us it would likely change um you know various times in our life and i think like it would you know like lyra's demon and and the the kids demons like they they change a bunch you know so like that i think is really believable i don't think that like once you get past adolescence it would be like like you know lotto slot like you know and like uh, changing like that but um i do think that you know, like you said, 17 to 27, 27 to 37. Like these are decades worth of life that you are not at all the same person that you were. Um, Some of your core is, of course, always the same. But I do think that whether we're talking about like gender specifically or just like our experience of ourselves, it would change more than just settling forever at puberty. I think it's kind of important to be like as well if you are reading the books and you found a way to like philip has definitely left the door open for you to read what you want into the books and if you found a way that you feel that your own demon would work then that's valid it's canon Mm -hmm. in your head it's canon like there's a lovely quote from him about like writing a book is a dictatorship publishing a book is a democracy like once it's out there in the world people can do what they want with it Mm -hmm. and i'm really here for that and like reading your own story wherever you can into it is always valid can philip have a conversation with like jk rowling maybe it sounds like (laughs) that would be great they should have a they should have a chat because somebody needs to learn that (laughs) totally oh my god absolutely fucking jk rowling i mean jesus just stop talking stop talking you gave us a gift now go away (laughs) oh my god i know it's just, yeah, I completely agree with you. She's just the fucking worst. She really like, is, truly. Shut up. The things that we've seen from from Philip have been good. I'm I'm just hoping and praying that he doesn't go down that road. He's been like curious, a little bit curious on Twitter about pronouns and gender and stuff. And I'm like, okay, Philip, please land on the right side of this. Mm-hmm. Please. Or just keep asking. <laughs> like, it's like powerful to ask the questions. Keep on asking the questions. Good on you. Um, and, you know, maybe let other people speak. Uh, one of the things, actually, that we talk about a lot, and feel free to tell us if you don't, if you don't remember, but we talk a lot about Lord Asriel in relation to the patriarchy because he is such <laughs> an asshole. Like... Honestly, we've finished Northern Lights and I can't remember much about the subtle knife and the amber spyglass other than the big points. So I can't remember his like through line apart from like what happens to him at the very end. Mm -hmm. 
in the Northern Lights, he almost breaks Lyra's arm because he tells her that she's insulin. Oh, yeah. So he like pins her onto a table. He is, I mean, Mrs. Coulter is another person that we'll get onto, <laughs> but like, because we fucking love her. He is so horrendous with her. And we know that she's a villain. We know that she is also horrendous. The way that he treats her at the end of the book is just so fucking rough. It's interesting because he, as a character, is a great character, but relating to him as a person i'm just like you are a piece of shit mm-hmm. and then <laughs> we've had people like email us being like oh no actually i actually really like Azrael as a character i think he's really really cool i think he's like a good uncle slash father to lyra mm-hmm. but like he's completely absent in her life he shows up every now and again to kind of basically just ridicule her and it's interesting how people read that so i wanted to ask if you can remember like back to your feelings about him and kind of what you thought? You know, I, I wish that I remembered more about him. I And I don't. And I, I don't know why that is. I like, I mean, I, you know, as you're telling me, like when you just told me about him, like, um, like pinning her arm, I, like the, the scene immediately came to my mind. Um, but what I was thinking about when you were talking is like, I feel like in so many stories where there's an insolent for lack of a better word, little girl who is like, I know who I am and I am this way. There's always a man who is that way. Like, uh, you know, like you, you, there's always a male character who is not only like threatening is like not the word I'm looking for, but who, who's not only sort of like denying them their ability to exist, you know, as their own person, um, but who is also occasionally like, physically aggressive and physically violent um, as a means to that end. So, you know, I think sometimes when when I read, it's like those larger themes and stuff like it's like, oh, of course, this is of course, this is here in this book. But I don't have um, I don't have like a visceral memory of his character. And that is you know, for any of you who are listening who don't know me, that is not a testament to like anything except for I forget everything. Uh. <laughs> it's it's so interesting that you said that though, because when I first read them, obviously the the gap between me reading them for the first time and me rereading them for the podcast is quite close. But when I I remember when I first read them, I remember texting Rich being like, "Oh, Asriel's a bit of a dick," and then kind of getting <laughs> over that. And then it was only when we read it for the podcast and obviously you're reading into it more that I was like actually wow what an <laughs> asshole like Lyra spends the entire book trying to get the alethiometer to him and we know that that doesn't end up being the being the point of of her making that journey sure. but he gives it to her uh, she gives it to him sorry and he's just like I don't Didn't need this <laughs> what yeah I don't need this bye it's like yeah I've I've witnessed a bear fight. <laughs> like I've rescued kids from Bolvanga, mm-hmm. all to bring this to you. And he's like, Meh. you know, it's too like I. I feel like there's this other aspect too of like an older. I mean, obviously we know that like he's her dad and what have you. But there's like another, probably another reading of it, and maybe this is what you're referring to from some of your listenership of like the lack of coddling is almost. Like I'm not I'm not um, advocating for this opinion, but like (laughs) the lack of coddling is almost like anti patriarchal, right? That like he treats her like he would treat anybody else, kind of like a a reasoning. Um, And and I uh, I wish I remembered more so that I could tell you like what I actually feel about this character um, and his relationship to Lyra, and I don't. Though I do now like really want to reread these books. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but but I will say that like I I at least understand how some people might feel like you know he's he's toughening Lyra up because he knows who she is he knows what she needs and he doesn't view her as a girl anyway like he views her as a this I am speaking out of my ass right now because I don't remember <laughs> this character but like there's little things in my brain and those are them you definitely reading the books as a younger kid, when I read them the first time, he's very much written because Lyra idolizes him through the entirety of that first book. It's only, I think it's supposed to be quite the reveal in that last couple of chapters where he turns out to be an asshole. <laughs> um, I think it's supposed to be a surprise. But Lyra idolizes him and he's this like cool uncle that adventures. And I think on my first read through, I did, I had that like, yeah, he like pins her to the table and shouts there and stuff, but he's like a gruff, rugged adventuring type. Like that's what they do. And then reading through it now, like understanding how the patriarchy looks and like what great men can actually be like mm -hmm. um, if you actually break them down to being a person and not like a, f a figure, mm -hmm. um, you kind of go, yeah, no, this person is way more complicated and complex and horrible than you necessarily thought they were going to be when it started out. And I think Asriel has one of those arcs and it's... Partly, I think the reason we've struggled so hard against it is that he is idolized throughout by everyone around him. Everyone talks about how he's such a great man all the time with like a capital G. <laughs> um, and then Coulter, everyone knows she's formidable. Everyone knows she's bad. And Lyra, um, I think from the moment we meet her in the book, we know she's bad because the first time we meet her, she lures like a little um, urchin boy, Tony Macarios, with the monkey and his little sparrow demon. And he lures... She lures him away. The next thing we see of him, his demon has been ripped from him. Ugh. And so we know she's bad, even before she meets Lyra. So we know there's this like sense of ominous tension. Mm -hmm. But you kind of have a lot of respect for her because she's fought the system to get to where she is. She's bad, but we know it. Whereas Azrael, I feel like he's bad and everyone's telling him he's so good. <laughs> well, and that's just it, right? Like when you are reading into those, like I think the word I was going to use was trope. And I, I think it applies here, which is like, you know, we're we're so taught to read male characters who are gruff as loving, like literally, like, you know, like, oh, they what they meant by that was like, what the hell? And you don't like, you don't know that. Like when you were just talking, you know, Rach, about being a kid, like, you, you don't even realize what you're doing. You don't even realize what you're internalizing. And for so many of us, you don't realize how that's going to play out in your actual life when you're interacting with people and what you'll accept as love, which you should not. Um, and so, you know, and, and then the same applies to Coulter, right? Because she she's written as the, how, how often do we see that? The evil woman who is like, you know, like it's so easy to like take the character and then apply everything you've been taught for your whole life up until reading that character to her and to him uh, and come out with this understanding, which is why it's so cool to like revisit texts and shows, I think, with a deeper understanding of so much of like, you know, feminism and white supremacy and, and like pa the patriarchy, like all of this stuff, because you're like, oh, my God, the grid work. It just matches perfectly. It fits perfectly over this thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I'll, I'll say about Miss Coulter I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about her anyway, but in terms of the TV show, Kristen, I would highly recommend because Ruth Wilson plays Mrs. Coulter <laughs> and she is perfect. And every week when Rachel and I were watching it, we were like, oh my fucking God, I just need to fuck yeah, myself. Okay, okay. <laughs> she is so good. And uh, she brings more um, 
because obviously in the in the first book at least we're viewing everything really from Lyra's perspective so we don't see Mrs. Colt is kind of on one level, right? She's this like evil woman that's doing these evil things. It's only at the end of the book when she has an interaction with Azriel before he walks into the other world that you kind of see a little bit more from her. But Ruth Wilson brings this kind of like emotional uh, intelligence to the mm. role and she nails mm. it and it's so great. Hot. So yeah, would highly recommend. <laughs> no, and hot. Okay, yeah, noted. Hot. <laughs> Duly noted. But yeah, her character, she's definitely one of my faves. I think it is so rare that you, I don't know, that you get a villain that is so, for for one, you get a villain, a female villain that's young, because she's only supposed to be in her early 30s, right. I think. And that is young, she's beautiful, she's powerful, she knows what she wants, and she she's done it in a way that she's completely, Rachel and I had a conversation where we think that would she have gone down this route? We think that she just wanted power. And the only reason she could get that power was to kind of hoodwink the magisterium into letting her do this horrible experiment because nobody else would Mm. do it. So she was like, look, I want this power, so I'm going to do it. And obviously what she did was evil, but we were chatting about if there was another way for her to get that power that wasn't as atrocious as the things that she's has done now would she would she have gone down a different if route the system allowed women to get the power they deserved without having to commit atrocities to get that power would she have committed the atrocities right 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 and and oh i mean you know who can answer that question but like the, the question itself is the point is like you know when we see when we see uh i i don't even want to say choices in like this broader sense but when we see the actions of a person and we don't take the larger context the larger history the larger life story into account we're not actually able to to make the correct judgment you know and i'm i i as as you both know but like we're um reading so much right now in the anti-racism reading and discussion group and um so i'm just like fully immersed in that i just finished reading um uh patrice Culler's um when they call you a terrorist, uh, a Black Lives Matter memoir, you know, which is which is like the history of like getting to Black Lives Matter, but it's her memoir, um, and like the the themes there are are exactly that, um, just um, with relationship to being a black person in America, um, and and like the way that we view as a society, the way that like, you know, white people primarily, but many people view uh, the actions of um, black communities. It's like, that is also this, this, this similar conversation of like, contextually, why are, why is she there? Why is she doing what she's doing? And what's the story there? And um, we don't, I don't think that most of us ask that question. Um, We have like our life and we apply our life to everyone else's life. And so if you don't make those choices uh, that we would have made, then you're wrong or bad. Um, hard stop. And, you know, Buffy's a show, I think, that also asks us to to look at that a little bit more deeply. 100%. Yeah, totally. And I think with Coulter as well, she has a lot of her kind of sexual history is one of the reasons that she wants to go down that path of like removing demons from from the kids because she had an affair with Azriel and had Lyra and then Azriel murdered her husband and she felt such shame from that such shame from being a woman and having a sexuality can you even imagine that 
she went down this horrible path to to stop anybody else from experiencing those feelings uh, or, or the sins, as they would call it in the book. Ah, which is so related. So sorry, not to bring up another book, but I just started. I just started this amazing book called "The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls." If if you haven't read it, you should read it. And if you're listening to this, you should read it because it's it's you know. I mean, I'm I've just begun it, but the author. Um, I I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but I think it's like Mona Altahawe or something like that. Um, and she's talking about this, like basically, you know, she she makes it very clear that she does not consider these things sins. But that these are the things that women are told that they should not and cannot do. One of them is lust. Uh, and, and it's attached to this idea of like owning your sexuality and your desire and knowing that your body is your body. Um, and so like looking at those seven necessary sins and applying them to this character, I think would be really powerful because where would she be? Where would all of us be? But where would she be if she grew up in a world where she was taught she could be? have power where she was taught she could be loud where she was taught she could uh have her own body as her as hers and and all these things that's so rooted in the the whole theme of the entire book trilogy being about the idea that dust is original sin Mm. and everyone's trying to hunt and eradicate dust and like stop dust affecting you oh it can't touch me and then lyra finds out it's it's nothing more than just like human consciousness and like curiosity and like that it's good and it's should be encouraged and she's just and I love at the end of the first book she comes to the conclusion Asriel wants to destroy dust Coulter wants to stop dust affecting children Asriel and Coulter have been horrible to me and horrible to children and horrible to everyone I know I think dust might be good I'm gonna farm <laughs> dust <laughs> yes. and the idea that embracing that the thing that that society is using to control you as being good and not sinful or mm-hmm. any of the other things is kind of what I love about the message of the book, uh, the books as a whole. Totally. And I feel like, like, I mean, the more that I learned about this genre in general, the more that that seems to be at the root of most of the stories that are told in fantastical realms. Like it is this way of asking us to look at the structures that we abide and, you know, look at the world around us, look at what's being held from us, look at what we're holding from other people. And, um, you know, when you sit, like I sat for so much of my life outside of the genre um, of like sci-fi fantasy, what have you, and you don't understand from the outside why people are so so attached to the stories and so so um like you know uh, endeared to the stories uh, and then like the minute that you set foot into even one you're like oh 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 okay i see what's happening in here i didn't know from the outside it just looked like <laughs> a bunch of like made up you know what I, you you just don't get it from the outside I was like, for me, like Harry Potter was like the gateway for me. I don't know about you, Rach. I know that you read them around a similar time for me, but I know that you've had more of a background of sci-fi. But for me, it kind of went, I don't know whether you can class Harry Potter as sci-fi, but more like fantasy. Fantasy, but but yeah. Yeah. It went like Harry Potter, Buffy, and then like His Dark Materials. But Rach, I know that you have a dear relationship with like Star Trek and things like that. What was your, what was your first, (laughs) what was your entry point? Um... I grew up with episodes of Star Trek Next Generation mm. in the background of my entire childhood because yeah. my dad is quite the nerd. Um, and then I think my first, I grew up reading like series of unfortunate events books and my sister 
got given as her year six gift when you when we left primary school we were in such a small primary school that everybody in the year that left that year to go to the like secondary school high school um got given like a present by the teachers that they'd chosen and her gift was the first book in the Tamora Pierce Song of the Lioness trilogy and I remember stealing that book and reading it um (laughs) and like the Tamora Pierce the world of like the Song of the Lioness and that kind of thing was like very much one of my first like delving into fantasy Mm. and then I progressed on to things like Terry Pratchett Mm. I think I may have even read a Terry Pratchett book before I read a Harry Potter Mm. book (laughs) serious nerd cred over here (laughs) (laughs) I came to Harry Potter quite late and uh because my sister read all the books as they were coming out to the point where she was featured in the local newspaper because she was the first one in the queue at the local bookshop waiting for her next copy of like the third or fourth book and we used to like read it out loud to each other on camp- wow. camping holidays and stuff. And it was a whole thing. But because I'd had this like secondhand experience of Harry Potter having it read to me and like never sitting down and like reading the books, I think I was like 17 or 18 by the time I like picked up the books and read them cover to cover. Yeah. yeah. Like all the way through. And His Dark Materials came before that. Yeah. So they are well and truly rooted in my uh, soul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. It's like I did read some. You just made me realize that I read like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, that whole series of books when I was a child. And I loved them. But I think I just didn't know. You know, it's so interesting to look at what is marketed, or especially if you're looking in the 80s, uh, you know, in the 80s and the early 90s, like what's marketed to young girls to read and what's marketed to young boys to read. And um, I don't think The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was necessarily marketed to young girls, but somebody got it for me and I read it. But then I was reading, you know, like um, Sweet Valley Twins and Babysitter's Club. And and I adore those, those books and I love them, but they were all written in reality um and like what is it doing to like the minds of like little girls versus little boys when you when like I'm getting reality 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 and then the boy next to me is getting like this fantastical these fantastical lessons of being able to like harness power and fight dragons like it it really is so gendered um and interesting but then I and then I just put it all I didn't really think about fantasy much I loved vampires. I always loved vampires, I will say. I, like, read a lot of Anne Rice when I was a teenager and what have you. So I guess I did have some of that. But um, it was not until X-Men for me. X-Men, the movie. Like, I watched an X-Men movie and I was like, oh, wait a second. There's a lot more going on here than superheroes. Uh, (laughs) So that that really blew the lid off of it for me. Yeah, and I think it's such an important genre for people growing up queer growing up different because it's it's easier to kind of imprint yourself onto these fantastical characters who are viewed as being other um and you don't get that with things that are rooted in our our reality at least Mm -hmm. anyway so i think yeah for me anyway it was so special to have like harry potter and buffy and even now as an adult like his dark materials to kind of I don't know, you learn more things about yourself when you, you think about who you're relating to within these books and why yeah. you're relating to these people. Yeah. And I think that's really special. I'm really excited for kids growing up in a world where reading a fantasy book isn't nerdy. It's not, um, it's not, you're not an outcast for reading a fantasy book. You're not uncool for enjoying Star Trek, but like that's so much more celebrated now and it's so much more part of like mainstream pop culture that you're not going to 
get told not to not to read those books because they're for boys or mm. not to read fantasy because it's childish because everybody now everything is so much more immersed in like and seeped in pop culture yeah. that you can it's so much more accessible to read those things and not feel like you're being an outcast for picking up the book that's full of dragons or witches or yeah, yeah that's like the cool shit now you know and and like honestly it was always the cool shit it was just like those of us on the outside didn't know <laughs> <laughs> we were told to read the books about buying shoes but really we wanted yes, to know about the sword fights <laughs> i did i did i wanted more dragons <laughs> totally i suppose bring it back to his dark materials do you have you mentioned a couple of things so like demons and um in the amber spyglass where Lyra separated from Pan. When we asked you to come on this, were there any things that you were like, oh, I want to talk about this particular thing that happened in the book? Is there anything that like really, anything else that really resonated with you? Yeah, I mean, I think that the most resonant thing uh, for me was the subtle knife. Um, out of all, out of out of all, I talk about the subtle knife all the time. I'm, I've probably talked about it on the on the buffering podcast. I. Um, talk about it just like in conversations with friends um, at the time when I was reading it. So like I've always felt I mean, I've always been like sort of connected to some kind of like otherworldliness, you know, like that, like this is not the only, you know, using the terminology given to us in these books, I'll say like the, this is not the only like universe that exists. But I think that that can be that can mean so many different things. Um, and you know, I, I would always joke like, oh, I'm a witch, you know, my dad's a witch and I'm a witch and my sister's a witch. And, and what I meant by that was um, sometimes I feel like I know things that like I shouldn't know. And when I was really little growing up, um, I like had a couple of moments where I like spoke to like the universe and was like, I don't want this. I actually don't. I, I reject it. I I'm so I'm too afraid by like what I might be able to see that I just would rather not see anything at all kind of a deal. Um, and, um, you know, my dad has a lot of stories about just like things that he sensed. And when I was a teenager, like I would have like dreams sometimes and would call my friend and like something very similar to what I had dreamt would have happened. And um, anyway, to, to make a, a long story a little bit shorter, I could never describe the like space I needed to access if I was like trying to f to feel that way to like something as simple as like trying to manifest a parking spot like for as ridiculous as that sounds. Um, but sometimes I would have an experience where like there's a Trader Joe's in Brooklyn um, on Court Street where like forget it like you drive there and you just never <laughs> find a parking spot you know. And there were some times when I would like drive over there and I would be able to like like manifest a parking spot but it but like if I if I and this is why the subtle knife blew my entire brain apart because if I I knew the moment I had like thought about it too much that I had screwed it up and I was like damn it okay but if I could just like kind of like exist in this like middle space with it um then I then I would find a parking spot and that's like a you know probably like the easiest most tangible most like ridiculous example but for me that idea that this knife I mean I I remember like every detail of how it's described and I don't remember anything else of, of like the whole book series essentially um but like the idea that if you didn't concentrate at all on your uh, effort to use the knife it wouldn't work but if you concentrated and you focused too hard it would shatter was the exact experience that I had with my connection to like other universes other worlds for whatever that means you know like um because I, I do think that we can lay that over so many conversations but 
Um, it, it just, I felt so seen and like that I had finally been given a tool to explain that middle space of, um, it's like meditative almost, you know, like being able to access a space where you are present, but you are not pushing, um, that like can open up universe, literally open up universes. Um, and so that, that to me of all of the books, and it's so funny because like when I was reading today, like the Wikipedia about the books and what have you, it was like all these accolades for the golden compass and all these accolades for the Ember Spyglass. And I was like, what about my favorite book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the subtle mm. knife. I, I just, that is, that is for me the one that really resonated in, in a million ways. And I think that would apply similar to how like you, you know, you watch Buffy over and over again. And depending on where you are in life, it means a different thing. I think the subtle knife for me is that. I love that because I have a very similar relationship with that book. I love that was my favorite. And I'm wondering when we're reading through for the podcast, like whether that changes. But when mm. I read the trilogy for the first time, I loved the subtle knife. I related to it so much more than the other two books. I also really enjoyed that description of that kind of being in that space and not pushing. Cause I I don't think I'm as witchy as you, Kristen, but I've had that have had those vibes before in my life where it's like, I want this to happen. If I if I push too hard, I know that it won't, but if I just kind of exist with it and know it's there, but kind of not look it dead in the eye. It's kind of similar to how Lyra reads the alethiometer as well, right? Because she mm. has to go into that space of not pushing too hard for an answer. And yeah, I think having both of those stories in The Subtle Knife really resonated with me. And also bringing in Will as a character is great. I loved Will so much. And I think just having him in that first chapter that I mentioned that I'd read recently, but like having him exist with Lyra at first, it kind of makes you realize how ridiculous Lyra is. Like she can't cook for herself. Like she thinks that uh, he asks her to wash the dishes and she's like, no, servants do that in my world. And you're like, Lyra, get a grip. But I really <laughs> liked that you have that like, that new perspective on mm -hmm. a character that you've just got to know in the first book. Yeah. And then you bring somebody else in that, that can kind of like blow it out of the water. And yeah, I, I really liked Will as a character. So I'm hoping that I have a similar vibe with it this time. But that actually reminds me of we had a question, Rach, from a listener that was, do you, how do you feel about Will and Lyra's relationship in The Subtle Knife? Because they felt that he kind of dampened her a little bit or like he kind of, uh, I suppose, was a bit more controlling over her and it dampened Lyra's spirits. Hmm. I don't know that it's necessarily that he was controlling, but that Lyra becomes very subservient. Mm or becomes very passive in the relationship that they have. She kind of goes, I am going to follow this person and do what they say now. And then it kind of loses a lot of the like willful strength that we see throughout mm. that first book. Mm. I don't know if they necessarily blamed Will for it. I don't think the energy was ever coming from him at her. I think it was very much her choosing to step under. But yeah, I'd be interested to see what you think of that as well. <laughs> so interesting. It's like, you know, reading um, or watching something in 2013 and reading or watching something now, for me, just like me personally, um, I think it would be a very, very different experience. Um, and I say that because, you know, like when I started Everyone is Gay and My Kid is Gay, it was around the same time, you know, Everyone is Gay was started in 2010 and My Kid is Gay was started in 2012. And, um, I, you know, I was very actively queer, but I was not very aware. Who was I just talking to about? 
my oh my experience of Megan Fox because I'm I'm about to do like a live watch of Jennifer's body right and so like I was talking about how you know Megan Fox I watched this interview with her recently where she's talking about how Hollywood treated her and this and that and I'm thinking back to 2010 and my like eye roll of Megan Fox that like I was even as as queer as I was, as active as I was, like I was not aware of so much internalized misogyny, of so much uh, white supremacist culture and, and how it was steeped in me, in me and made me operate. And, you know, the patriarchy was like a thing that I knew about. But I so so all that to say, you didn't think that this answer would include Megan Fox, did you? <laughs> <laughs> it's magical like like that inside of this brain. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, so I don't know. I remember loving Will and I don't remember feeling um, anything about Lyra, like that anything had been taken from Lyra, be- especially because, you know, I can't remember the specific of their relationship, but I know it wouldn't have been my favorite book if I had felt that Lyra had been dampened, you know, as a character because I love Lyra. So that would be like a really interesting thing for me in a reread is to look at it from that vantage point or like at least carry that with me into the reading. Um, and I think, you know, Faye, to your point, like there's all these things that li- that you're like Lyra get it together and so I'm sure I probably read some of it as just like it's good that she's like listening to you know some of what Will is bringing to the table and and what have you Lyra had been positioned as a as a character in the first book who wasn't going to take shit from anybody who was going to give her shit so I probably just walked into the second book knowing that and figured if she was doing anything like that that was why no I agree with you like even me just from reading the books even just last year I don't remember like thinking that about Will and Lyra, but now when I read it again, I'm going to be looking out for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's crazy how much the world changes and how much we change in between like readings of certain texts. I think I read Harry Potter a billion times when I was younger. I haven't read it for maybe like ten years. Obviously, I know there's so many problematic things about Harry Potter, but I didn't really pick up on them back then I wonder how many I would pick up on now like it's crazy how how much we change and to your point about Megan Fox I remember doing <laughs> the exact same thing mm-hmm. uh, we, we actually we had a conversation with it uh, about that we recently did, yeah. yeah but I feel like she was positioned even by the media and stuff as in like she's the pretty girl so you're supposed to hate her yeah. and like it that was the attitude of just like she's she was being positioned as this like the woman all the boys want like everyone's got posters of her in a bedroom and so as the as the girl that's basically media assuming everybody is a cis straight girl being like that's your competition Mm -hmm. ladies Mm -hmm. and I definitely a lot of that was like internalized yeah um, like self-hatred on my part because I was there being like yeah Megan Fox but actually no Megan Fox fucking yes do your thing and yeah if you haven't seen the interview that I don't know if either of you have seen this or if your listeners have seen it but there's an interview between her and Diablo Cody uh 10 years after the making of Jennifer's Body so it's just last year 2019 um they sat down and had a conversation it's like a half hour conversation and it is unbelievable because you first of all get to see Megan Fox talking about like I mean she literally gives voice to her relationship to feminism and like being like I didn't like I never felt that I could occupy a space in feminism like I didn't feel like I was allowed at that table because of who I was and anyway just like watch that video if you're interested in examining some of your own internalized misogyny if you had opinions about Megan Mm. Fox in 2010. (laughs) 
Absolutely. We'll de- yeah, we'll definitely watch that. I also remember watching Jennifer's Body and being like, oh, I don't like this film. But like, I know, I've not seen it since, but I know 100% now I'd probably love it. Oh, but, like, you, the- you definitely would. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I was definitely really into it when I watched it. Oh, good. I'm glad you were. Yeah, oh, I need to watch it again. It's spooky. <laughs> it is. It's so spooky. But the, I mean, yeah. And the reason that that movie was a, was a um, failure, uh, like a box office failure, and the reason it's resurging now is because it was marketed to teenage boys. And teenage boys didn't want to watch a woman devour them (laughs) 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 oh god i need yeah i need to watch that film again maybe that's why we have such love for mrs carlton Mm. now Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah totally (laughs) i wanted to touch back on the tv show Kristen, and i know know that you haven't seen it there's some wonderfully uh diverse casting in the in the tv show that maybe i I, as a white woman, didn't picture in the books, mm-hmm. but it's it's wonderful. And they've they've kept that kind of like grittiness that I think the film lost. It's much more like true to true to the books. Mm-hmm. Um and basically that was just my pitch for you to watch the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I, I I do want to watch the the show. Um I, I'm I, I think that what I'm wrestling with is like, do I wa- you know, should I reread the books before I watch the show? Because I I I, like I, I want to remember some of the the plot, but I suppose I could do that through watching the show. So I don't know. Do you have a recommendation? Uh, Rich, do you, what do you think as a person that's read it a lot more than I have? I would say maybe just watch the show because I when if a movie based on a book comes out and I've not read the book, quite often I'll be like, okay, I'll watch the film first yeah. because if I read the book and it's different and more than that's true, it's like bon- bonus content as opposed to being like my beautiful thing, you broke it. Yeah. Why did you break it? Yeah, <laughs> um, a thousand percent. So I, yeah, so I think maybe that will be a more uh, kind like kind way to allow yourself to watch it <laughs> it'll also mean that i'll watch the show a lot sooner because let's be real i probably won't reread the books for a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and um i will also just put a vouch for uh lin-manuel miranda as lee scoresby he got got a bit of hate for playing lee i personally think he's great as lee. <laughs> um so yeah i think he did a good job it's, it's weird with lee because like he's one of my favorite characters yeah. i love the kind of cheeky like aspect that he brings to the book which i didn't actually kind of read as being like that until i saw lynn playing mm. him in the tv show and then when we got back to reading the chapters in the book i kind of related to lee more as that kind of kind of comic relief character and him and Daphne Keene who plays Lyra have like a really great rapport in the series but yeah and it's weird in the book as well because I feel like everyone that had seen the film uh, Sam Elliott played him in the film and he's kind of like gray hair like gray mustache quite an older guy mm. um people had kind of read that and read that into the books and thought oh he should be played by an older guy but when you read the book the description of of him is dark hair like dark mustache it doesn't mention anything wow. about his age yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. weird how like people are projected totally. onto it. It's so great. But like I think that's one of the things that allowed the casting to be so wonderfully diverse is that Philip writes the descriptions of the characters very vaguely. So mm-hmm. I think with Lyra, we don't get much on Lyra. We get that she's strong-willed. We get that she's, I think, blonde, which they obviously changed for the show. Mm-hmm. And then I think with Miss Coulter, it's similar. You kind of get like hair color, like with Will, they say he has a strong jaw, but like, other than that, you can you can project mm-hmm. anything onto them, mm-hmm. which I think is really great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> we don't work for them. It yeah, kind of sounds like that. Doesn't it? <laughs> we wish we did. Yeah, we wish. <laughs> uh. 
on that, which is kind of similar vibes, there's, I don't know if you know this, Kristen, but there's a new new trilogy out now. I just learned today when I was doing my research. Um, I just learned that there's a new trilogy and got very excited. It's all about dust, yeah? Yeah, so mm-hmm. the book, book of Dust. There's two out at the minute. Um, I've read them both. Rich is... Rich, have you read... I'm reaching like the <laughs> the final sprint in the La Belle Sauvage by just... Turns out reading for the podcast has kind of like... Now, sometimes reading feels a little bit like homework. Mm. <laughs> just so tired all the time. Mm-hmm. And I've like conditioned myself to fall asleep when I read. So I keep accidentally falling asleep when I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> listen, as somebody who is like, oh man, I have to watch episodes of Buffy. And then I'm like, what? What, what is wrong with me? But like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, work is work is work is work. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it takes Completely. on a different meaning. <laughs> but yeah, um, they're very interesting. I won't say too much, but it's more of Lyra's story. Mm-hmm. It's a pre- it's like a pre it's a prequel, right? That's what I, yeah. I read a little bit that it's like uh, years before. Um, she's like she's littler, not older. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because we get kind of again. I won't say too much, but we get both sides of it. So the first book, she is a she is a baby. The second book in that trilogy, she's an adult. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. so you get a time jump. Okay, great. Because I was like, dude, how when I read that she was a baby in the first book, I was like, Philip, I understand that this gives you the ability to now also write another trilogy where she's an adult, but I don't know how old you are, man. You better get these books out, you know? (laughs) So I'm glad to hear the yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's so um interesting as well, like reading about Lyra as an adult. Because it's just something that I I personally didn't think we would get um and kind of relate in more to her as a, I think she's 20, 21 in the, in the second book. It's also like, you know, when you think about it, it's like, you know, I mean, I love the character of Lyra, but also isn't it something that like in the 90s, this man was writing the story of this little girl. And like most of us, I know that there were some very aware feminists at the time, but like most of us swallowed it like wholesale you know like this is great and I love Lyra I will always love Lyra but now in like the year 2020 to be like oh this care this like strong-willed uh female character at 21 is being written by an older man is just like mm, don't I don't love it even though I will I will read I will read it I want to know what Lyra you know like Lyra was created by Philip but like it feels not like you know it just doesn't feel ideal i want uh yeah it wasn't my favorite but not because of of that aspect although it does play into it but Mm -hmm. there's a there's so many characters in that book that it's quite difficult to get to grips with Mm. um but yeah reading lyra as an adult it's interesting i remember uh reading bits uh, where she's like coming into her sexuality and like it talks about her a little bit like having sex and stuff and then i was a bit like Ooh, ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, like, thank is, you, Phil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, eh, please don't go into any more detail about yeah. this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, a bit, feels, it's a bit weird. Feels a little wiggly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, yeah, maybe be aware of that. Mm hmm. That's actually, to bring it back to Buffy, that's actually why I still have not read the Faith book that Jenny talks about mm. all the time. I know I need to read it. I know I do. But it was written by a dude. And I just, I'm like, get out of Faith's head. Get out of her head. 
I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read that either. Um, it wasn't, I actually didn't even know it existed until Jenny mentioned it on the podcast. And you can't get it. It's like here oh, in really? the, I mean, you in the US here in the Patreon group, in the Facebook group, they mail a copy or a couple copies to each other because you can't, it's like out of print, so. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. yeah. We don't stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody will send you the book. Somebody. Jenny will send it to you. <laughs> we'll find it somewhere yeah. somehow. <laughs> I guess with the series being written by an old white cis guy, mm-hmm. straight guy, uh, there's not necessarily as many chances you might want to like explicitly have queer characters in a story. Are there any characters that kind of, I know we've uh canonize some queer characters in our own heads in our read through of this and I wonder if there's any of that that you kind of picked up on or imprinted onto the books as you read them like I know for us the master and the librarian Elira's like original dads because they care so much for her and it's very sweet and there's definitely something going on between like Lee and Yorick and Lee's had all these relationships with witches in the past that have ruined him for women under 300 <laughs> and so it's like does that mean he likes the men under 300 oh, right. that's fine right, too right. and then the witches as an entire like populace mm-hmm. like we are here for like 300 year strong witch relationships mm-hmm. and I wondered if you kind of read any of that into or if you like just having a conversation about celebrating where we can read queerness into these books. Yeah, I mean, like, that's what I was going to say is, like, I, I either did and I forgot or I didn't um, because I was just beginning to, like, cut my teeth on realizing that everything is queer. Um, you know, it was beginning days of that journey for me in 2013. But um, I I will say that, like, I think, and we talk about this in in Buffy, in, the, in like, the Buffyverse, too, the, the power of this genre as a whole is that, like, everything is queer. Literally, literally like, every, you know, like, I know that, I mean, it's, it's a little dodgy with, like, you know, the author and the creator of Buffy being, like, cis white dudes. Um, but the thing about being queer is like you're 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 sort of like blowing up the expectations of society and you're blowing apart this grid of like there should only be one universe or there should be you're a girl and you should be with a boy or you know whatever the case may be like that's the point of of the genre and that's the point of of the fantastical is to say like no that's not it there are not two boxes of gender there is not one way of being in a relationship there is not you know a, a one way of being a girl there you know all these things and so um i don't remember specifically laying that over but i think like the general power of the story is that it helps you really see how ridiculous these structures that we like abide by are um and i think you know like being queer is something that i am like forever thankful for because i know that like embodying when you embody something that is very clearly outside of a prescribed structure, it's really easy to see how ridiculous the structure is. Like, I mean, I shouldn't say that because there are a lot of people who have a very deep internalized homophobia because they cannot see the ridiculousness of the structure. Um, but for me, it was just like it, it became increasingly clear over years and years of like, this is a bunch of bullshit. Um, And, you know, I think that I think that the whole series gives us that. And I know that, like, you know, the author is a cis white dude. Um, But I think, you know, I think that in the beginning of fucking creating shit, it was all cis white dudes. And so 
I think we're taking steps away from that. And I think we're getting more stories from people who are not cis white dudes. And um, that's good. And like, thank you, Philip, for these stories. (laughs) Um, But I think I think most of us are turning towards now, like those stories that are being given to us by, you know, trans women and, you know, people of color and just like voices that have not been heard for years and years and years and years and years and years, years, centuries even. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things, isn't it, where even though uh in these books, I mean we do actually have the the witch uh, the angels, right, who are actually a canonized gay couple who who we love. Right, right. In uh, is that the subtle knife or the amber spyglass or both? I think we meet Balthamus and Baruch in the subtle knife, mm-hmm. I think, but they I guess they carry on quite far into the amber spyglass. I'm... Memory. For me, <laughs> the second two books have like yeah, merged yeah. into one book because That's funny so because the second two books so of me have become three. oh yes Um, so yeah we do have those characters as actual gay characters but I think you are so right and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the sense that like this is why this genre is so special because you can read it in that way like you can read the entire arc as being a queer arc or you can read into certain characters as being queer and I think that's what's really special about it um but yeah for me and Rach when we talk about the witches especially we were like oh they're definitely queer they live they live for hundreds and hundreds of years just by themselves this group of women I don't think that right. they have not gone there I least. mean that's like the Wonder Woman <laughs> quote of like right. uh what no, oh right we were on this island of Amazons uh we were just celibate yeah no <laughs> I don't yeah. think so <laughs> exactly exactly Exactly. And like you were saying with like um, new writers emerging all the time, people of color, trans people, we're going to get those stories or, or I really hope we're going to get those stories in the mainstream of the universe mm-hmm. at some point in our lifetime. I know it's coming now right. where you're seeing this it trickling through, but I'm really hopeful that at some point it's just going to be the norm and you're going to get to read those queer stories that actually include queer people right and and many queer people right like many queer people many people of color like we're reading um as part of the buffering book club we are two uh we're reading the second of a trilogy by ll mckinney um the first was called a blade so black and the second is called a dream so dark the third isn't released yet and it is a fantastical i mean it's basically she self-described it as like if buffy was a black bisexual girl um right and and you know what you get in those stories because philip pullman is telling stories that are about like the universe and structures and like not following um some of what we're taught by the patriarchy and that's great but um what you're getting like what i get in like reading ll mckinney's book is much more directly applicable to the experience of people of color and using that fantastical realm to tell those stories specifically, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly important. I just finished The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Very similar. This is a fantastical story about like New York City and the boroughs are have their avatars. They are those characters. And it's it is about blowing like the lid off of these structures, but it also is a black woman writing this story. And so you're getting that experience. And it's very clear if you read The City We Became and you read a golden, uh, you know, the golden compass it is very clear that one of those two stories is written by a black woman and one of those two stories is written by a cis white dude so you know i think like that 
I think we are. I think we will get that in our lifetime. I mean, we have the stories. The stories are here. It's just like, I think, I, but I do think that they will be moving more and more into the mainstream. They are right now. Like, I think that's part of the movement that's happening um, right now. Definitely. And I think it's special as well that you have these things like His Dark Materials and Buffy. You have these people talking about them now in that sense. And you guys on Buffering and all the work that you're doing for, for black people and people of color and bringing them more into the space. And that's really special because that's something that that wasn't there in the 90s and, and they wouldn't been able to see themselves in that space. Um, and it's great that like, and with like his dark materials and the casting on the show being more diverse and things like that, it's nice that even these things from the past have had that resurgence in the sense that we can still make these queer stories or we can still include people of color in these stories and yeah i, think I mean i really think critiquing special. like critiquing taking a text like buffy um a, t- a text like his dark materials which i have not taken critically you know i've not read critically but like taking those and and really reading them critically um and bringing in um opinions from people who have had various life experiences is super powerful i mean i think like ultimately you you want to uplift the stories that are told but right but i do think that it is important to look at the way you know of so much of what we're going to be doing in in the next couple of seasons is also examining like the way that we took in buffy uh the way that we watched buffy like jenny and i as cis white women like how did we watch that show and what did we not see and how is that a direct reflection of what we do not see currently or did not see then in real life um and that is powerful and that's like a powerful tool so yeah i think yeah recognizing things like his dark materials like Buffy like the things that you've read that have helped to grow and shape and allowed you to question the system Mm -hmm. exist as the building blocks that are available at that time and now there are new and better building blocks with fewer cracks made by different people that have different perspectives to you and like I think like I'm so here for like the amazing like expanding fandoms that exist I mean we're part of it for Buffy we're part of it for his dark materials like we're building and celebrating that but I would hate to think that we were putting something on a pedestal to never ever consider another new piece of work like and not question the thing that we're like celebrating in any way in such a way that it means that we couldn't turn away from it and look at something else that's newer and better and more current and just what we need to strive towards like I definitely love and appreciate his dormitories as a stepping stone that has taken me and my opinions to where they are now and like that I'm going to grow from and that I'm really enjoying analyzing back onto yeah. but I think it's always really important to like remember yeah that it was written in 1995 yeah yeah probably <laughs> way earlier than that too like came out yeah. in 95 but right it was probably written in the early 90s I mean you know uh Rent, the musical, was a formative, formative piece of my um, existence as a teenager, and that came out in 96. And then I was in grad school in 2006 or something, and I learned that Sarah Shulman had written that story and that the central characters were... Maureen and Joanne, the lesbians, and that Jonathan Larson had taken the story and adapted it to musical form and that she had never been given credit for her work in creating the story. And 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 so I really had to sit with like this. And I and I think it's important to be able to sit with that. You can't take away, like you cannot remove the power that that musical had in my life. It exists. 
But also I can hold that and I can also hold that like, oh, shit, that was really created by these systems um, that I'm like fighting against right now. And like that was part of that story. Uh, So, yeah. I think that would probably bring us to the final three like major questions, which are, being as you love this little knife so much, if you could cut through to any world (gasps) anywhere right now, where would it be? Oh, my God. I mean, like any world in any fantastical universe, like that's, is that what you mean? Or you just are asking me like a very open question from my imagination to run wild. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's infinite possibilities with every, I mean, um, right now, every cut like, the knife, to, be, right? to be like super, like, I'll, I'll just be like really specific about it. Like right now, the world that I would love to cut through to, you know how like time moves differently um, in different universes. And I think that time moves differently in a given day. I like truly do not believe in time as a fixed principle. Um, and right now I am feeling like uh, time and work are in uh, deep conflict for me, you know, like that my time is limited and that I've, I've been finding less time for like self-care than I need because of the pressures of like wanting to do things responsibly and, and well and all manner of things. So the world that I would cut through to right now would be one where time moved slower. Um, <laughs> and what's funny is that I have those days. Like I do have those days. And that like I, I know that, that that universe exists because I wake up in those days and, I, and I'm just like, wow, look at this day. It's just going on. I have plenty of time. So that's the universe I would cut myself into right now um, to give myself a little bit more room to like center, to give myself more room to um, I am an over uh, like I, I put out content and I don't take the time that I need to consume content and like sit and think and read and watch. Um, and I think that that's really important, especially where we are right now in our universe um, to be listening and like learning. And so I would like to open up that portal for myself. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then the question that we ask everyone is, what is your demon? oh what would you want your demon to be so we do a thing on the podcast where every week we reflect on like how we've been feeling and we say like if our demon could still change what would our demon have been that week so i don't know like if you've ever thought about as an adult if you just know what your demon is or if you want to answer the question in relation to like how you've been feeling this particular day all week right. that's, that's fine too it's so funny because for me like it's just I automatically go cat I automatically go cat and I don't even know that that's accurate like I think if I really spent time thinking about like what a demon is supposed to represent and like what the animal of a cat is like I'm not I'm not positive that I would find the connection there but it is more in the connection between the human and their demon that to me makes it a cat because because of the story that I told you about Trey and like um that feeling of of like being like fully just like enveloped in a relationship uh with an animal and that is my animal so i'm going to say cat but with the caveat of i'm i don't know that that is that that animal is representative of like my week in particular or just like my core in particular but it still just feels like a cat yeah that's great Rachel you're a cat too aren't you yeah <laughs> I'm just a cat person so <laughs> it was never gonna not be a cat <laughs> what about you Faye I am a duck <laughs> oh my god I love it oh no I love your duck <laughs> yeah so basically when I thought about this part of me is my last name is Ducker so it makes perfect oh, sense but yes. 
but also uh, I love the water and obviously if you had like because first I was like I love whales I'd love to be like an orca but then I would be I'd have to be near the sea all the time and that just Mm. wouldn't work out whereas I feel like ducks kind of have the best of both worlds and they can be on their pond or on the lake or whatever but also roam about on land so I was like yep that's me see that's an examination of like your true like that's really a reflection of you in animal form which i like i like that also the like you with a tiny duck on your shoulder right now (laughs) just about more than i can take (laughs) and we'd each have our cats sprawled across our Uh, yes (laughs) i I live near a park where there's a big pond and every time i walk past the ducks i'm like (laughs) is it you (laughs) (laughs) you? (laughs) totally Yeah, so, well, I think that wraps it up, Kristen. So thank you so much. We've had such a great time. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I, I truly, I mean, I, I it was so excited to like revisit some of my feelings on these texts and um, and just like hear you both talk to you as people who are really immersed in them right now. Uh, and to think about just like the universes like of fantasy and, and sci-fi. I think that you'll probably hear some of like the thinking that has happened in this conversation manifest in future conversations on, on buffering, which is why I love this so much. Um, this is like a way of like thinking in real time. totally yeah and do you do you want to tell people where they can find you and and what you've got going on yeah so um the podcast that we've referred to a whole bunch of times is buffering the vampire slayer um and we are just in between seasons five and six right now at the beginning of october is when we'll be coming back with season six um and you can find more about that podcast at buffering the vampire slayer.com um and i'm Kristen russo but most people don't know my last name because before i knew that i would have people following me i made my twitter handle my first name and my middle name uh my middle name is nolene uh and so you can find me at kristinnoline.com, which is K-R-I-S-T-I-N-N-O-E-L-I-N-E. And that's also my Twitter handle and my Instagram um, where you can, you know, see my actual cats. They are not my demons, but uh, they are little demons. So <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate your time. And yeah, just so good to have you. Oh, us. my gosh. Yes, so great to be you. here. Yeah. <laughs> if you need any more deep dives on the subtle knife when you get there, you just give me a shout. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Pick a chapter and you're welcome. Anytime. Great. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Ah, hello. <laughs> Hi. Oh, my God. That was God. so much fun. Oh, we're here for the outro just because we wanted to freak out over how great that was. Yeah, Yeah, here we are, (laughs) just the two of us. I just want to extend our thanks to Kristen. It was really special for us to talk to Kristen, actually, because we should have said this to her, but hopefully she listens to this. But without buffering, there wouldn't be this podcast. So it was really special for us both to chat to Kristen and a little bit surreal and... I'm yeah (laughs) I don't have a lot of words I'm just very happy I feel like we tackled a lot of topics and everyone needs to kind of go and decompress a little bit because it was so much fun talking to Kristen but oh my gosh do I need to go and have a little nap because we talked about so much and it was so exciting yeah to hear Kristen's opinions on the books especially was really special because we know we know what Kristen thinks of Buffy. We listen to it every other week, but to hear her opinion on something that something else that's really special to us was was really great. And I hope you guys um, enjoyed listening to her. And if you haven't listening uh, listened to Buffy and the Vampire Slayer and you're a fan of Buffy, 
would highly recommend listening. Get on it. Yeah. <laughs> get yes. on it now. If we haven't already talked about it enough in the podcast, we are telling you again now to go and listen to Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, thank you so much, Kristen. If you are listening to this, if you dared to delve back in and re-listen to that intense conversation we had, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing all your personal stories about your relationship to the books because whilst I enjoy the big conversations about how the books have impacted society and made us think about society, I am I fucking love the like deeply personal stories and relationships that people have with the physical pages of those books. How could you cut it in half? Oh my God, ah, I'm still scandalized. Oh my God. As Krista mentioned in the recording, we did record the video of the conversation. Um, so we'll be putting that up on our Patreon page for all patrons. So if you want to come and join us on Patreon, please do, because you'll get to see Kristen's book cut in half down, what was it, page 298 or something like that? <laughs> uh, 198 to 199, or was it 298 to 299? We're gonna have to, we'll have to double check because I need to make a note so that we can drink to her poor book when we hit it in, in our read-through. <laughs> totally, but yeah, if you want to see that with your own eyes, I would recommend heading over to Patreon to go and uh, to pledge and have a look because I simultaneously was was heartbroken for it for this book but i was also like that is such a fucking great story <laughs> such a baller move oh absolutely <laughs> thanks so much for listening to this special episode of her dark materials you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at hdmpod and you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com you can also visit our website hdmpod.co.uk if you want to support us and view that video of Kristen's book in half you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps other people find us I'm Faye and when I'm not talking to Kristen I'm probably writing you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Faye which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y and if you want to read some of my blog posts I'm on Medium at Faye.Ducker I'm Rachel and when I'm not chatting about Buffy and his dark materials and Terry Pratchett and everything that I love in this world I am usually making designer toys art and illustrations you can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes on Twitter at Rach underscore makes and in my online shop RachMakes.co.uk huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings and we'll see you on the 21st of September and don't forget keep telling stories and all will be well Thanks, Christine. Bye. Dead. Bye. Bye. Dead. <laughs> <laughs>